Can I ask everybody to please take out your Bibles? Or excuse me, your cell phones. Everybody take out your cell phones. After you're like, done, I already got it. Okay, who can look up for me? This is serious, so bear with me, okay? Who can look up for me? Who was president of the United States in 1862? Who was president of the United States in 1862? Look it up, Greg. It was Abraham Lincoln. Let's ask a harder one because he knows that one. Who was president of the United States in, se- in 1797? See, now, people, that stumps you. Look it up. Ken, you don't count. You, you don't get to. <laughs> he, Ken teaches government politics. And I, yeah, he's, he knows. He knows that one. Who can look it up? Who is it? John Adams. Who, oh, who can look up this? How do I replace an air conditioner in a 1992 Ford Bronco. <laughs> Look that up. Who can find it? Really, who can find it? Who can find it? Okay, not, somebody else looked this one up. How many, no, it's not, but it'd be funny. How many years is one trillion days? One trillion days is how many years? Look it up. Anybody have the Ford Bronco one? Nobody? Somebody's got it, because I know they can find it. I have looked it up before for F-150, but not a, you know, same thing. Anybody got it? Somebody's got it, right? Who knows how many years the trillion days is? Anybody have it? Two million seven hundred thousand days? Or years? a lot. This makes our deficit get a little scary. It's a lot. If you pay $1 a day, every day, it's going to take millions and millions and millions of years. That's crazy. Okay, here's my point with the cell phones. We can find anything on there, right? This is an age now, we are living in an age where young people have grown up with the internet and access to this information where you can find anything you search, good or bad. And in this age now where you can find and search anything, Um, It is an unprecedented moment when people who don't have Harvard degrees can look up stuff that in the past you had to be the elite, educated, knowledgeable people to find out. So if you didn't study and know for years and years and years so that you become the expert, then there, there wasn't knowledge in that area. That's how it worked in the past. Ready? Up until the late 80s, which is not that long ago. And so now we have children who don't know the sounds of the dial-up or waiting 15 minutes to get on. They don't know what it's like to have to go to a library and go through encyclopedias by hand instead of just pull up Wikipedia and it's immediately there. Do you remember the stacks of books that you would have to get for reports? Stacks of books, right? And you had to cite them. And it was a lot of work. And now there's search engines that can find articles anywhere in the world in any language in the world. And you can translate that language before you had to know the language. That's wild. We're living in an unprecedented time of information and exchange. And that unprecedented time of information and exchange pulls on your mind every day. It pulls on your mind every day. Today we're going to talk about Jesus because we love him. And we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at what the word says about him. We're going to honor him. We're going to worship him because he's worthy and he's good. But I'm telling you right now, if we don't take a stand in ourselves to be experts on the word of God, if we rely on the cell phones, if we expect the information age to lead us through because we think that we're more evolved or better than all the generations before, if we allow all of the media to influence us, influence us, influence us, and become calloused, so that we don't realize what we even think or believe anymore, then we are going to lose what God has called us to do. And now hear me, God is faithful. God is faithful. God has people we don't know about. God has all those who have, he's called to himself. He's called us to himself. We belong to him. He loves us. He's sanctifying us every day. We are his. And at the same time, he has given us a job to do. What is the job he's given us to do? Disciple the nations. 
Disciple our own neighbors. Disciple our own kids. Tell everybody about Jesus. See them baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that Jesus has shown us. That's our job. And if we don't do that job, then we're not walking where God wants us to walk. Now, that's an interesting thought because if you Google that, what's the job of the church? You're going to get a lot of answers. And most of the answers that we have in our culture now have nothing to do with the gospel or with discipling people and everything to do with being a social club, a place to make friends, a place to help the needy, which are all good things, but it's not the mission of the church. And you, church, have been given a mission by God to do something for him with power because he has called us to it. Will you turn in your Bible with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's right after the book of Acts. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. In the beginning of the New Testament after the Gospels. Here's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, Do you not know that all race, that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's the crown that the winner would receive. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating against the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Thank the Lord for his word. Do you consider yourself to be one who's running a race for God? Do you consider yourself to be one who is moving forward in the things of God? Or are you feeling aimless? I saw a graduation speech the other day by Arnold, which was awesome. I'm not going to try to do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation for you. Uh, but he was talking. He was doing a graduation speech to a bunch of graduates. And he said in his speech that 74% of all the people in the workforce in the state of California hate their jobs. 74% of the people that when they're queried about whether or not they actually like doing what they're doing, hate what they're doing and would change it if they could. But through circumstances, they found a job, it paid the bills, they're doing it. And the point that he was making is, if you have a goal and an aim to do something, then your job is still work, but it doesn't just become a chore. And so we need to find things that may not be the things we want to do all the time, but opportunities where we can make a difference and we have some kind of desire to make that difference, and then we go about it with a goal. And there's not just, I'm just making money here, but I'm actually doing something. And that's important. And Paul is telling us in a similar kind of way, there's a lot of people aimlessly walking through life that are just doing things, just going, and they're not actually having a goal or an aim, especially in the race that God has called us to run, that our aim is not just to fulfill ourselves. It's not just to feel better. And one of the real lies that's come into our society now is that if you read the Bible and you become a Christian, then you're just going to feel better. And the problem is that God has called us to a mission for himself, to disciple those around us, to represent him, to live holy lives, to see him enthroned in all things, to tell everybody about everything he's done, to be his ambassadors in the earth. That's our mission. And instead, sometimes it becomes this aimless idea of just feeling good and happy instead of making him happy. Uh, when I was in college, we had a tradition that we would skip graduation when, when the graduating seniors would skip graduation, and there happened to be this half marathon, this big race in the town in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I went to school. And so we'd all run the half marathon. That was the deal. And so I didn't learn about this until later, and I did some training, but I was doing a lot of training at the time because I was doing military stuff, and so I figured, like, this is no big deal. And so I ran a lot. I ran a lot. But I ran a lot up to about 10 miles. And half marathon's 13, a little over. And so I remember running in this thing, and I was doing good. Everything was great. Hit mile seven, I'm a little tired. Mile eight, nine, I'm a little tired. Mile 10, okay, a little rough. Mile 11, not feeling great. Mile 12, I was like, my body was like, what are you doing? This is when we finish. What are you doing right now? And I remember running, and I was like, I'm running. I'm running. And I was just, I was so tired. And I didn't sleep the night before, because I, 
I just stay at a buddy's house because it was near the race and we ate pasta, so you carbo load or whatever, and then they like played music till two in the morning. I'm like, what are you guys doing? We got the race. Ridiculous, that was the worst. <laughs> anyway, so now we're running the race, and I mile 13, just it was just agony. You know, God's not called you to agony in the race. The race is fulfilling. Because when you do what God wants you to do and you're in the center of his will, it's like what you were designed to be. Because it is. It is what you're designed to do. You're designed to run this race for God. You're designed to make disciples. You're designed to bring dominion. You're designed to bring order and not chaos. You're designed to distinguish between good and bad. Do you know that's what priests do? And you're priests before the Lord. You're designed to uphold his honor. You're designed to tell everybody about God and how to live because people want to know and God has made a witness to tell people how to live. It doesn't mean we become Pharisees and, and smack people around with Bibles and tell them they're doing everything wrong. It means we show them God's way so they would know him because if they know him, they're going to live his way. And right now, think about what the world is pumping through that media, through the internet, through your cell phone into people about fulfilling what you want and the lusts of life. How much is life to our culture about fulfilling lust of various kinds instead of anything of purpose? God has called us to much more. He's given us a race to, to run. When God created Adam in the garden, he made Adam, he made him good. He brought Eve to him. The garden was complete. It was excellent. They were naked without shame. How incredible is that? They were doing what God called them to do. They fell to the serpent's thoughts, to his lies. And the lie was really, you can be whatever you want to be. Don't, let, don't, don't worry about what God said. They fall to the lie. They eat the fruit together. Sin enters. Death enters. And God enters. How amazing is it? that the governor of the world, who's man and woman, are the governors of the creation that God made. They sin against God. Do you remember what they did, the first thing? They hid themselves because they realized they were naked. They tried to fashion little clothes of fig leaves. And God comes down who created their very bodies and breathed life into them. He knows exactly where they are. There's no hiding from him. They could try to go anywhere, could not hide from God. And he comes down. Do you remember what he asks them? Where are you? If your dog defecates in the middle of your house and you come home, pretend it's not a Great Dane like my parents have, but it's a little <laughs> tiny little fuzzball one, a little itty-bitty thing, chihuahua. You could just step on it. You shouldn't step on it. You could, though, right? And you're like, oh, gross. But if it's hiding around the corner, you're like, where are you? Do you say that to the dog? No. You see, man became traitors to God in that moment. They rebelled against his regal creational authority. And God came down. It's one of the most gracious questions in the world. Where are you? He knows where they are. Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? He could have just squashed them right there. What did you do? Have you ever come home and found your child made a mural on the wall? Where are you? Who told you to color? No, you come, what did you do? You did to my house. That's God's house. What did they do to it? You made death enter my house. What did you do to it? That's how we would expect him to respond. Instead, where are you? Because God had a plan. And immediately, even in the judgment that happens there, he says, I will bring a son. And that son is going to make this right. In Genesis 3.15, he gives a promise. And the promise is the serpent's going to strike his heel. But this son, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. And now God has intertwined himself into our history to say, I am promising I will make this right. What? an amazing God we serve, who is so good that when we spit in his face, he said, I'm going to redeem you. This is what grace looks like. It's unmerited favor of God. 
Later on, we read in Genesis about this flood that comes, and it says that God, seeing all of mankind, saw that all of their thoughts were evil and violent from birth, and he regretted that he had made man. And still, because he had made this promise, he takes one family and he takes this guy, Noah, and he says, Noah, I'm going to have you for over 100 years. You're going to build a big boat, and I'm going to put my creation into that boat, and I'm going to seal the door shut because I'm bringing judgment on this earth because people have corrupted it so badly that I'm going to recreate this earth. And so for 40 days and nights, it rains, and God shuts up animals, representatives of all the animals, and this one family, Noah's family, inside the boat. Have you ever been on a vacation with your family, 40 days and 40 nights, during a storm, feeding animals? It's amazing they live through it. But God shuts the door of a boat that has never been tested. We don't know if it's going to survive this storm, but it survives because God carries it holds it above the waters. And then for a year, they live in this boat on the waters. You know, we think the Noah story is quick. It's not quick. It's violent. It's terrifying. Could you imagine the sounds of the people beating on the boat trying to get in? Who watched for a hundred years. It took Noah almost 120 years to build the ark. And all that time, every nail he's hammering is a nail that resounds with the sound to say, God's judgment is coming. Repent. But people don't repent because they love themselves more than they love God. And God's wrath on sin looks like a storm that devastates creation. It looks like a storm that wipes out all life. It looks like a storm that floods the earth that's, that's overwhelming in every way. You cannot escape it. You cannot get away from it. It's utter darkness. It's the most terrifying, most horrible, most death-giving thing that's ever been. The floodgates of the earth open up. We can't even understand it. The rain just pours down. It will not stop. It's unrelenting until everything is dead. And then when it's dead, we wait a year to make sure it's dead. That's what God's wrath looks like. And if you're not in the boat, you are clamoring against the boat. Please let me in. And you are dead in your trespasses. That's what God's wrath on sin looks like. But God shows to us that his own character, he has given us one, saving a family, and that by his own hand, he's going to hold up that boat to preserve life because God's so amazing. You know, our culture would tell us not only that should we follow our own lusts, but our culture would also tell us you deserve all the best things. Just because. You, you deserve it. Nobody can hold you back. Your potential is unlimited. You can define whatever that really is. You can be whatever you can be. You can live your best life. Are we really worthy? Do we really have unlimited potential? Are we really worthy to have that? And the Bible's answer is no. We are not. From Adam's time until Noah's time, no one was found worthy. Even Noah himself gets off the ark, falls into drunkenness and ridiculousness, and starts cursing his own family. There the vacation thing comes out. He fails. Noah's not worthy. Adam wasn't worthy. So God's timeline moves on, and we meet this guy Abraham, and God gives promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. You're going to be my representative. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars in the sky. Go count the, count the sand on the seashore. Can you count it? No, Lord, I can't count it. Your descendants will be like that. Follow me. Trust me. Go out of the land of your fathers. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to make your name great. It's going to be incredible. You're going to have these descendants. It's going to be wonderful. And so for years and years and years and years, Abraham waits for this promise to come true. While he waits for this promise to come true, his beautiful wife, Sarai, who's beautiful, she's got to be like movie star model person because she's the envy of kings of nations that they go through, is sought after by these kings, the Pharaoh of Egypt and others. And, and Abraham, though he believes God and walks out, says to his beautiful bride, tell everybody that I'm your brother because they'll kill me if they find out that I'm your husband. 
And so she does that. And the deception is so clever and so good that Pharaoh even takes her to become his own wife and add her to the harem that he has. And God's judgment comes down on Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and brings plagues upon him because he is messing with the wife of promise from whom he will bring this family line to fruition because God said he was going to bring a son. And this judgment comes and, and Pharaoh says, why would you deceive me like this? Is Abraham worthy? Twice he does that. Twice he does that. And then as an old man, year after year waiting for this son to come that God promised, instead he marries a concubine. And then has family strife with this concubine when a son actually does come and sends her away. And she goes away so depressed she waits under a tree to die thinking that she's going to kill the child. Does that sound like somebody who's worthy? But God in his faithfulness protects that child, protects that woman. But he takes Sarah, the wife of the covenant, and he does give her a son in her old age when she's so old that she laughs about getting pregnant. And so they named that baby the son of laughter. Isaac means laughter in Hebrew. And he's the son, but he, they only get one. And all the hope of the Bible is maybe this is the son that God is bringing us. Maybe he'll be worthy. Maybe he'll be the one that God promised way back in Genesis 3.15 that he will save us of our sins. And Isaac does not. Does not. But God's covenantal promises go on. And the people of God go and they grow. And now there's tribes of them, many of them. And they're growing into this mighty nation. And a great famine starts to come on the land. And out of the sin and disobedience of some of those brothers, they sell one of their brothers into slavery. But God rises him up to become the ruler of the known world. Second in command under Pharaoh. And God gives him dreams to interpret so that he knows that this great famine is coming. And so Egypt for years prepares because they believe God's word because of this Hebrew slave that now has become a ruler. And by Joseph's word, they've saved up enough food that all of the nations of the earth come to them looking for hope because there's no food anywhere. And even those brothers come back and they see God's covenantal hand who has saved them from certain death and destruction in the famine. And so they settle in Egypt, and they stay there, and they grow and grow and grow. And the people are becoming so mighty that now they've forgotten. The Egyptians have forgotten about Joseph and about how he saved the world and all the great things he did and the dreams that he, he interpreted and all this stuff. And instead they say, these Israelites, if they continue to grow in power, they're going to overwhelm us, and they'll kill us all and take what we have. And so let's enslave them, and they'll work for us, and we'll push them down. And for 400 years, they are pushed down into slavery. And at the end of 400 years, because they're still growing in might, and the Pharaoh is afraid of them, he tells an edict, a legal law to the people, that every male baby who's born has to be thrown into the Nile and drowned, lest they grow into a powerful nation and hurt us. And the Bible's heart is screaming out because all these boys are being killed. But God, he said a son would come. There'd be a woman who's going to give birth to a son and there's going to be this boy and he's going to save us. But what if he gets drowned in the Nile? And so God hears the prayers of the people that are coming up from this oppression and he hears them and he sees their slavery and he remembers them after 400 years. And he comes back and he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the one who gave all these promises, and I have not forgotten you. And he sends a guy named Moses. And Moses goes into Pharaoh's world, and he comes in. Moses has his own story that's incredible. And God commands him, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He says, let my people go, and Pharaoh laughs at him. And so for a long time, plagues come against Egypt, and they are like the flood. Terrifying. Horrible scary, painful, it's death, it's awful, it's darkness. And all the people start to cry out because they realize there is no God in Egypt who can stand up against the one God of the Hebrews. And so they start to cry out, let the people go. And Pharaoh finally, after his own son is killed, says, go and get out. The people are so eager 
to have the Hebrews leave that they start throwing jewels at them as they go. Take my gold. Just tell God to stop these things. And so the people now, millions of them, leave Egypt as God remembers his covenant. And they come to a mountain, and on that mountain now, God is going to take the descendants of this family, and he's going to build them into a nation. And he tells them, I'm your God, and you are my people, and these are the rules you will follow because I am the Lord. And he gives them stone tablets with laws upon them to form these slaves into now a people who will rule with him. He gives them his name. He shows them what he's like. He tells them what they're supposed to be. And we think Moses, Moses is getting the law. Moses is amazing. He's, he's incredible. Moses, he's great. He had a bad past, but now he's doing amazing things. He's doing miracles. God's using him. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's worthy. But Moses gets frustrated with the people. And Moses does things that God doesn't tell him to do. Because it's important that the prophet, the one who's speaking for God, only says what God says. And he doesn't do that. Instead, he misspeaks. He does what he wants. He says, Lord, thank you for giving me that word. I know what to tell the people. I'll say it like this. And knowing what he was doing full well, he did not what God said to do. And God judged him and said, you will not go into the land that I had promised Abraham. You will not take the people out of that slavery and see them now redeemed to where they're supposed to go. In fact, all the people rebel, rebel against God. They've seen the miracles. They've seen what he does. They've seen his presence. And even those people rebel against the God that is leading them and providing for them so that a whole generation dies out in the wilderness. No one is found worthy. No one is found worthy. But God is good. He raises up people who love him. He raises up people who follow him. His word is strong. The law has gone into their hearts. They've heard it. Not everyone follows it, but a lot of them do. Things are good, and God is showing them, this is how you should worship, and this is what I want you to do. And God's presence is with the people. And now a guy named Joshua is leading the people. They come into the promised land, and when they come into the promised land, it's impenetrable. There are fortresses everywhere and, and big people that are scary. And God says, go in there and you're going to have to fight against them. But I'll be with you. And the Lord is in the battle. And he delivers them. And it's incredible. And God does so great. And it's wonderful. And all the, the majestic and conquering that he does, it's also scary and terrifying. And a lot of bad things happen. But God brings them into this land. He's fulfilled what he said to Abraham. And yet no one is found worthy. And now they're not just in this place, but the people are crying out saying, God, it's not enough for us to have this land you've given us. It's not enough for us that we are here and that we know that you fight for us. It's not enough for us that we are called by your name. We need a king like the other nations. We need to look like them. If we don't look like the people around us, if we don't keep up with the Facebook stereotypes, we're not going to be accepted. Nobody's going to listen to us. How will they listen to your testimony if we don't look exactly like them? If we're not like them, then they won't want to listen to us. And so we can't do what you told us to do. So give us a king. And God says, okay, choose him. So they choose the strongest, the tallest, the most handsome. Saul turns out to be a coward. Saul who leads the people into destruction. Saul who's ridiculous in his policies. Saul, who's not following after God. Saul, who hides with the baggage instead of leading the people. And so the Lord says, I'm going to send you a new king, and I'll choose him. And he takes a shepherd boy who's out in the field, who's little. He's handsome, but he's tiny. And he's out with the sheep. He smells bad. And he tells the prophet, anoint this one. He's going to be the king that I've chosen. He's the one that I want to be the king. And this guy, David, shows up anointed by God, and in the power of that anointing, he knows who he is. He fights giants. He kills them. Saul has killed his thousands. David has ten thousands. He has mighty men that rally to him who do exploits. The best of the best, the cream of the crop of the military, the cream of the crop of all the leaders, rally to David to fight and defend him. He's wise. He's strong. He's a musician. All the girls fall all over him because he's so great. He's amazing. His throne is established, and God says, I'm going to make a throne for you that will be everlasting, and your descendants will be on it for all time. Why? Because God is making a kingdom. Because the expression of what God wants in the earth is not just a ragtag people. It's not slaves. 
It's not just one family. It's a kingdom. And there's a king on the throne in that kingdom. And he rules well and he rules with justice. But then as David gets old and tired and he's tired of fighting, he sees a beautiful woman and he falls. His, one of his best friend's wives, a guy who had, who had sworn his life to David to help put him on the throne, one of the mighty men, one of the guys who was with him in the worst situations, not only does he take this girl, she, and she must have been gorgeous, I guess. I don't know. It says she was beautiful. She was beautiful. But he so desires her, and then now she's pregnant. He's got to cover it up, and he's, his reputation is stained. What do I do? Oh, it's not good. So he writes a letter to one of his generals. Hey, this guy, my friend, he'll do anything for me. Put him on the front and then withdraw. Tell him he's got to hold the line. He'll do it, and I know he'll fall. So David arranges his murder to cover up his own sin so he can take Bathsheba to be his wife, legally. We thought, we thought he was worthy. He's not worthy. So now God, still being faithful, there are other kings that come, there's people. A lot of them have tainted hearts. A lot of them have sin inside themselves. A lot of these kings lead the people astray. A lot of them have this desire for themselves instead of a desire for God. The nation gets judged. They fall into slavery again as a judgment because they're not following God. And now they're under oppression by the Romans. In a time when it seems like hope is lost, Jerusalem has been captured, and God sends his son. And he announces to shepherds in a field the great regal announcement of his son being born. And he takes a woman who's a virgin, who's just a girl. She's 17. She's a baby. And he takes this girl and he says, you're going to carry the child of promise. And she says, Lord, do unto me as you will. And so now by the Holy Spirit, not in some weird gross way, the Holy Spirit puts this baby inside her and he's a real baby. There's really a placenta. There's really an umbilical cord. She actually nurses this baby, and if she doesn't, he will starve to death. She actually births this baby. She and now her husband, Joseph, who happened to be in the line of David, have this baby inside a stable and put the baby in a feed trough. This is the baby. And the world misses it. Because it's not big like a Noah. It's not big like a Moses. He's not handsome like David. The world misses it. And they expect this great Savior to come, the worthy one, who's going to show up and be bigger than life. And he's going to walk on the clouds, and he's going to say a couple words, and his enemies will just be engulfed in flames. He's going to be an X-Man, a mutant. There's going to be claws, fire out of his eyes, something. He can float. He's going to be an Avenger for sure. You know, he's going to have like Captain America stuff. He's got, that's what they're expecting. That's what we're expecting. That's what we want to be. We want to be Jedis. We want to be superheroes. We want to have power that we control that nobody else gets. And everybody goes, oh, you're cool. We want more likes on our Instagram. And the reality is, here's a guy who's born poor. And what does it look like for him to be worthy? He trusts and obeys. He only does, ready, what the Father tells him to do. He has all, he's God. He has all power over everything. When he steps, the ground trembles underneath him because the Creator is walking on the ground that it made, that he made. It's groaning to cry out to him. When he speaks to fig trees, they either live or die. When he speaks to people, maladies are healed. When somebody touches the edge of his garment, the healing power comes out of him into them, and suddenly it's like they're new because he's making things new. He sees people that society doesn't see. He loves them and teaches them and shows them. He has the law in his mouth. He is the judge of the earth. 
And so when he makes a judgment, it is complete. He does not change his mind. What he sees is the way it is. He can hear men's thoughts and he can see what's in their heart. Jesus, as he walks through the earth and is telling people about the kingdom of God, he is the kingdom of God. He's the very embodiment of everything that scripture has ever said. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and every word he says, every place he stands, every person he heals, every person he judges, everything he does is perfect in the eyes of God. He is everything and he is worthy. And in his perfection, the people see him, and he has rocked the status quo. He's messing up the economy. He's messing up our oppressed relationship with Rome. And so this guy has got to die. The people he rose from the dead, Lazarus, he's got to die too. And if you speak for him, you've got to die. So much so that on the day he's crucified, the crowd cries out, Give us Barabbas, the traitor, murderer, thief, who is duly sentenced to death. Give us him because he's one of us. But take the Holy One and put him on that cross because we don't want him. We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus Christ, who's in the line of David, Jesus Christ, who is the worthy one, Jesus Christ, who is the man and the one of promise, fully God, fully man, he's everything. He is the covenant. He is the one who has fulfilled all these things. He is the redeemer of Israel from Egypt. He is the one who brought them out of slavery. Jesus Christ himself will now go to a cross in perfect obedience to God the Father because it was the Father's will to crush him instead of you. And God put him on a cross on a target where the full wrath of God would be dumped out and the darkness like the flood and the crushing weight of those waves would come not over all creation because God promised he would never again destroy the creation, but instead his one son takes all of it for you. He's worthy. He's worthy. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet saying, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne, before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crones before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive power and honor and power and glory. For you have created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open his seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and nation and people, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain! to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And the church says, Amen. Jesus is worthy. He is the promise from Genesis 3.15. The seed who would come, who would make everything right. He is the fulfillment of Noah. Because there is one ark of safety in which if you cling to it and you're inside of him, you will live. But if you're outside of him, it is utter darkness and gnashing of teeth. It's Jesus. He himself is our ark of safety. If you're in him, then you know his covenant promise. If you're in him, then you know life. He himself is the law, the word he spoke. He himself is the fulfillment of the promise on Abraham. Abraham was promised a great name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Jesus has been given the name. He's been given the land. He's been given the descendants. He's been given you because we are his. He's the fulfillment of the nation making that God had done. And he has given, been given us as an inheritance and every nation of the earth so that the earth would be a footstool for him. He is God Almighty. He is the only one. He is the descendant of David, the root of David, the king who is seated on the throne, he is the only one worthy. He's the only one we bow down to. He's the only one we listen to. He is the reason that we live. And the reason you were created and there's breath in your body is to give him worship. And God has called you to rule with him, to be seated with him, to be an ambassador for him and to stand up for Jesus Christ and make disciples and see people baptized and walking the way that he taught us to walk. Because to love Jesus means that we obey him. And that cell phone in your hand has become an idol to our nation. They caress it. They love it. They watch it. It fills them with information. It's their first prayer. It's their last good night as they set their alarm. It's their trust that they're going to wake up in the morning. And I'm telling you, if you put your trust in that cell phone, you are going to find destruction. You cannot. You can use it. It's a tool. Praise God. Don't throw your cell phones away. Use them to call people. Praise God. But if you put your trust in it, it will fail you. There's only one ark of safety. There's only one law that's been spoken. There's only one who's worthy. Are you in Jesus? How do you know if you're in Jesus? You know because you say, Lord, I trust you more than I trust that stupid phone. I trust you more than I trust my own legs to carry me. I trust you more than I trust any human. I trust you more than I trust any government. I trust you more than I trust my Ford Bronco. I trust you more than I trust anything. Because you, O oh God, are my life. And if you pray that way and you say, Lord, I will obey you, forgive me of my sin, I'm telling you you're in him and you've been anointed with power to be his representative. And as his representative, you might not preach every Sunday, but God has given you a place to proclaim the word of God to your family, to your neighbors, to the people around you, to your coworkers. It is not a mistake that you were born in 2022 age. Not a mistake. You were not born in the wrong era. If you were wishing, man, I should have been born in 1797 with John Adams. 
It's, there's no mistake, because God put you here. There's no mistake that you have the skin color you have, because God loves every race. There's only one race. He loves every color. He loves every culture. There's no mistake that you're in St. Louis, because God's put you here. Now, if he's telling you that you need to go somewhere, obey him. And we don't want you to leave the church. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, go where God tells you. Because he does not make mistakes. He's the lawgiver. He's the ruler of the earth. He's filled you with power. And he did not make a mistake when he called you. And put you around people to proclaim the word of God to people who are using their phones as the idols of their lives. That's what they're doing. And the internet has puffed us up to think, we're better than everybody that's come before us. Church body, brothers and sisters, friends, only Jesus is worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. Give yourself to him and wake up. Today is the day to stand firm. Don't let your mind be clouded. Don't let your mind be clouded. Did you know that sexual immorality is mentioned so many times in the Bible? as against God's way. But look at our culture that elevates it to perversions that are loved. And if we don't hold fast, if we let the media and the internet affect our thinking so that we start to think, that's not that bad. It doesn't matter. It matters to God. Did you know that God hates lying? He hates it. And yet every video Facebook post we see is riddled with it. Riddled with it. How do you even know what to believe when that little box is giving you stuff that people make up all the time? And we have to be a people who are not so concerned about the lies in there as we are about living the truth in reality. That we are humble to say, I'm not worthy, but he is. I'm messed up, but he's not. And he's made me holy now to be in his presence. Are you holy? Do you know that you can stand before the holy God, the judge of the earth? And if they look at you like, you're asking the weirdest, you're crazy. I'm crazy for Jesus. Because we have a mission to do. And our God, he is so worthy. Let's wake up. Let's stand firm. Let's run the race. Let's move forward with, with strength and vigor. Stop feeling like God has forgotten you or left you out because you don't have a Porsche in the driveway. Stop feeling like God has not qualified you for doing the works of ministry because you don't have enough followers on Instagram. Stop feeling disqualified because you don't have enough fashion sense, because you don't look good enough. If I just lost 50 pounds, then people would really, you know, I'd, I'd look better, so they'll listen more. Forget it. God speaks, and he speaks through us. We're just vessels. If we trust God, then he's the one who claims lives. He's the one who repairs people. And what do you do? You take that person by the hand and say, here's baptism. That's number one. Uh, number two, read your Bible. I, uh, number three, call me. It's, it's regular life, isn't it? And relationships and friends and neighbors and real. What's real now? Man, you know, it's shocking how many people don't even know their neighbors. I don't know all my neighbors. Do you? I don't. I don't know all my neighbors. I maybe know kind of their name. But our society is changing, 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 changing. It's more and more digital. It's more and more all these things. Don't be fooled. God has a mission, and it's in real life. And the mission is for real people. So get in your head that God is going to use you to bring a disciple to him. And that's good. That's what you were designed to do. When you do that, every part of you is going to be like, oh, Lord, this is better than that great song we sang. It's so much better because you're doing what God has called you and made you to do. And he's empowered you. Amen? Will you stand? I'm going to pray for you. Lord, you are so good. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the lamb who was slain for us. Lord, we are not worthy. But God, you sent your worthy son. 
He's worthy of all blessing, all honor, all worship, all power. And so, Lord, with all our hearts, we lay ourselves before you. We say, God, we're yours. Forgive us, Lord, for letting ourselves become calloused, desensitized. Forgive us, God, for letting ourselves start to think that what the world tells us is true instead of looking at your word and knowing that the truth of your Bible is truth. Lord, we want to be gracious like you. Lord, we want to speak like you. Father, we want to judge like you. We want to stand like you. Lord, we want to smell like you and and sound like you. And everything that we do reflects Jesus Christ. Father, help us. Lord, as you put us in situations where we don't have the words according to your great word, you said that you would tell us what to say. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, give us the words. Lord, help us to avert our eyes from the fakeness of the Internet that we would live in the here and now, and that in this age, in this time, in this place, in our neighborhoods, in our families, Lord, we want to see you reign because you have conquered. So, Lord, make us conquerors with you. Lord, make us joint heirs. Make us those who you have already elevated to be seated with you. Make us see ourselves the way that you see us, that we would honor you and we would wake up and shake ourselves and the dust would fall off of us so that we can run the race with you. Lord, you have not trained us to only go 10 miles and then to fall apart. Lord, you have made us that we would finish strong. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, anoint our joints, anoint our muscles, anoint our minds, anoint our tongues, anoint us, Father, with your Holy Spirit, that we would do and say all that you've called us to do so that we would see St. Louis and beyond discipled to look like Jesus. Lord, let no neighborhood be unturned. Lord, but in every place, in every hidden shadow, Father, Lord, I pray that you would send your people and send us, God, that we would see a mark made here, that the map would show this is where the people of God live. Lord, and from there we'll go to every nation because you've called us. But Lord, here with what you've given us, help us to be faithful, God. Lord, help us not to be thwarted by any kind of prejudice, but Lord, break down all those walls. Lord, that every person would know your word, that every person would know your gospel, and every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in the time of the living. Lord, we want to see it now. We don't want to lose not one of our neighbors. So, Father, we pray, use us, God. We trust you, Lord. I pray for every young person here, but every teenager here, that you would know the call of the Lord Jesus Christ upon your life, that you would hear his voice, that you would know prophetically what he says about you, that you would feel a fire burning in your spirit that you cannot contain, that as you go on to all the things God calls you to, you will always hold fast to his mission, that you always hold fast to his anointing and calling, because you cannot escape this king. And so I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, Holy Spirit, touch each young person now, that they would know a fire in their mouth, a fire in their belly, that the zeal of the house of the Lord would consume them so that they would be like their Savior. Lord, I pray that spiritual gifts would emerge in every one of us. Father, that you would use us with power, that, Lord, we wouldn't just walk through the earth doing little things, but, Father, you would cause us to do big things. Lord, cause words of knowledge and healings. Father, raise somebody from the dead in St. Louis. Lord, use us that we would do miracles. Use us that we would know what to say. Father, I pray for tongues and interpretation. Lord, I pray that prophetic words would resound, that every person would know that Jesus Christ is here in our midst, and every person would know that he is on the throne, and he's the only way of life. Lord, we trust you. We look to you. Our whole hearts are yours, God. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are commissioned. Make no mistake, he is worthy. Give him your everything. God bless you. We're dismissed.